Well, last week, our pastor took us through Mark 10, 35, when James and John approached Jesus and asked to sit on his left and his right when he's in his glory, and how they had these expectations that were false expectations. Pastor Andy had titled the sermon, Great Expectations, and haven't we all suffered from unmet expectations. You thought things were going to turn out one way and something different happened. You thought somebody would behave one way and they behaved another. You thought the situation would turn out like this and yet you were sorely disappointed. And you responded to that unmet expectation in ways that were dishonoring to the Lord. This is very common Experience for mankind it happens to us maybe daily in small ways and other times it's really big situations and it's hard to cope with it, hard to move on. So I want to help you this morning to respond biblically to unmet expectations. We'll stay in the same passage, but we're going to use the passage to burrow down a little deeper and um, see what's going on in our hearts because that's where change happens. It's an important subject to me because during one of my seminary classes, one of my my favorite professors, my counseling professor, uh, he said 90% of your counseling will deal with unmet expectations. You know when you're in school and you're receiving so much information, something like that just passes you by. But when when your professor says 90%, of your life is going to be this, you really ought to wake up, take good notes. And his words now echo in my head because after nearly seven or eight years of pastoral ministry and trying to sort out my own life, yes, 90% of life does deal with unmet expectations. And some people seem to be able to roll with the punches and they say, well, it is what it is. And others, we get stuck, we get embittered. We can't seem to move on. And we've all been there. So I want to help you get unstuck this morning. For the glory of God and for your own peace and happiness and joy, we're going to learn how to respond biblically to unmet expectations. Let me read the passage to you so it's fresh in your mind. Mark uh, 10, Mark 10.35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher... We want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) You're laughing already. (laughs) If you have children, has one of your children ever come to you and said that? Dad, I want you to say yes to whatever I ask. Because they know you're going to say no. They know it's like an unreasonable request. You promise? You'll say yes. I'm not going to promise anything. Tell me what, you, what you'd like. And that's exactly what Jesus says to the disciples. Aren't they acting in a very immature fashion coming to Jesus, de- demanding something they, they know they really have no right to ask? And so he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. Sounding like children again. Oh, yeah, 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 we could do it. We are able. They didn't even bother to ask what the baptism was and what the cup was. Yeah, whatever. Answer our question. Do we get to sit on the left or right or what? Whatever the cup is and whatever the baptism is, it's going to be... It's going to be great. We want to be part of it. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. I wonder what they were thinking with this answer. Not the response they were expecting. In fact, really filled with riddles. Because we're getting used to Jesus answering questions like this. 
They should have walked away with more questions than they, they came with. In the meantime, the ten heard it, the other ten disciples, apostles, and began to be greatly displeased with James and John. As you could imagine. As Pastor Andy said last week, and I agree with him, not displeased that they would do something so audacious, but displeased that they had beat them to the punch. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Where did James and John come up with these expectations? That they would even think it would be reasonable to ask such a thing of Jesus. Well, let's kind of walk through their life and put ourselves in their shoes, their sandals, whatever they wore. They were beginning to accept Jesus as Messiah, that he was the Messiah, the one they'd heard about from the Old Testament scriptures, the one taught to them from an early age. They knew the stories of Messiah coming to conquer Israel's enemies, reestablish the Davidic throne. Israel's enemies would be a footstool under his feet. And he would usher in a kingdom of unparalleled peace and prosperity, heaven on earth, utopia, paradise lost, regained. Isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what we hope for every election cycle? Maybe this will be our day. Maybe the yoke of our oppressors will be. We don't even know what oppression is here. but it's, We're really starting to not enjoy what's going on here in our country. And we want things back the way they were. We're starting to sound a lot like, like the Jews. In fact, every culture, every society, the history of mankind, if you're a student of history is always waiting for the day when all their needs are met, everything's great, peace and prosperity, and yet man for thousands of years can't seem to pull it off. And we see over and over again in the Bible that in Israel's case, God will conquer their enemies and create a context where they could start to realize these expectations they have, to enjoy peace and prosperity, and yet they always seem to mess it up. Didn't we have a good foundation in this country? Our Puritan heritage? Bible being the backbone of our Constitution, where did it all go wrong? The world says man's getting better, he's evolving into something better. And yet, we just seem to come up with more and more sophisticated ways to kill each other and steal from each other and hate each other. So certainly, something's wrong, and the solution isn't just that Jesus give us a new kingdom here on earth. But that's what they wanted. They were tired of Roman oppression, tired of being the little guy, tired of getting no respect. This is an honor-shame culture we're talking about. There's nothing more important than your honor. And these men were disrespected by the Romans. They weren't Roman citizens, so they didn't have all the rights and privileges of being a Roman citizen. They got leftovers. They were heavily taxed. It was hard to eke out a living. You didn't get to keep much of what you made. James and John were fishermen. Some in, in the Jewish culture by the age of 13 would be chosen by rabbis to sit under their tutelage. You know, I got into Harvard. That's basically what it was. And everything that comes with that, the prestige and the open doors and 
promise of a better life. But for most people in the culture, they were going to work and work hard. The kind of job that takes years off your life because the labor is so difficult. So James and John were going to be fishermen like their father, Zebedee. And one day, Jesus of Nazareth comes along and points to them and says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Gee, I don't know what that is, but it sounds a lot better than what we're doing. Somebody's picking us? Uneducated fishermen? Okay, fishermen, not fishing like you and I do up at the lake. You know, this is a hard, hard life. Sometimes hours and hours of toil, and you catch nothing. Well, that's like when I go fishing. But that's, that's where the parallels end. I guess for me it would be preaching, 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 and seeing no fruit. Evangelizing, 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 seeing no converts. Um, just grueling hard labor for these men. So what an opportunity to follow Jesus. And then they start seeing him doing miracles. And he's using messianic titles for himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. Everyone would know that that was referring to Daniel's prophecy. The Son of Man was the title for Messiah. He calls himself Son of Man. He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He, he raised a dead man to life. He's got great power. He walked on water. He fed the 5,000. He displayed amazing wisdom. When the intelligentsia of our society would approach Jesus, they couldn't better him. He could always one-up them, always had an answer for their question, and then gave them a question they couldn't answer. This is the man. This is the one. And he picked us. He picked us. We're going to reign. We're going to be somebody's, finally. Okay, now you're tracking with them, so don't be so quick to judge James and John and the question they have. And keep in mind, James, John, and Peter were in Jesus' inner circle. They got to go places and do things the other nine didn't get to do. They got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. <laughs> we got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. <laughs> You've, you've said it. You've done it. You've thought those thoughts. You know, everybody wants to be special. Everybody wants to be a somebody. Sometimes Jesus would bring them into a room when he did a healing, and only those three would get to witness the healing. So now you're James and John, and you realize there's a seat on the left and a seat on the right, but three in the inner circle. Musical chairs. We'll beat Peter to the punch and ask for the left and the right. You know, if Jesus had said yes, what do you think James and John would have done next? <laughs> what, what seat's better, the right or the left? The right? The right-hand man? Right. Well, I'm older. <laughs> I should get the right. Well, Esau was older than Jacob. And God chose Jacob. Oh, now you're throwing Scripture at me. You know, this is the way we operate. You know, we just sang, and I love in the song, you know, indescribable, you know my heart, and you love me the same. Well, that's enough for me to worship the Lord forever right there. That He knows we are like this and loves us just the same. We are James and John. Even the person who says they don't want the seat, the people who take the back seat, often aren't as humble as you think they are. Because you can be very prideful sitting in the back, too. Not you guys. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, you know, well, look at me. I'm very lowly, and I don't need the place of honor, and... Um, but you're demanding attention too. This, this is our fallenness. And so Jesus had to come to conquer the penalty of sin. So he paid for our sins on the cross and conquer the power of sin in our lives. 
what kind of kingdom would Jesus have if everybody still had a wicked heart? Who would want to rule over that kingdom? Have you ever been in a situation in your life where an organization needed a leader, but it was a messed up organization? You, you're like, uh-uh. I, I ain't going there. I don't want it. I don't want to be in charge of that motley crew. And so wisely, Jesus came first to reign in our hearts. So the second time he comes, he will reign in a literal physical kingdom, but we'll be ready to be his subjects. Israel's greatest problem is the same as our greatest problem. Jews thought their greatest problem was slavery to Rome. Jesus said, no, your greatest problem is slavery to sin. Our greatest problem is not global terrorism or communism or theological liberalism. It's meism. Got to have my own way. And I have expectations and I get upset when they're not met. Let me tell you a story about the time I was young. I don't remember how old I was, but I think I was in my early teens. I want to say I'm really young because the story doesn't go well and I throw a tantrum. So... Um, you know, but I've thrown adult tantrums too, so let's just be honest. My family lives in Stockton, I admit it. <laughs> and my grandparents lived in Downey, and every summer we would drive to Grandma and Grandpa's house. And every summer we had to drive past Magic Mountain. Every summer. I'd say, can we go to Magic Mountain? No, we're not going to Magic Mountain, we're going to Grandma's. And I got to do all kinds of wonderful things at Grandma and Grandpa's. We went to Dodger games and the beach, and um, it, it was great. But the older you get, the more you're like, I want to get on those big rides. It looks amazing. Now that I'm like 42, like, I could see why my parents didn't want to go. <laughs> we take our kids because they do this readathon and they get free tickets. And we usually we do the, the park for about five hours. That's about all I can take. And then, and then we leave. So, but I had been to Disneyland and I had been to Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk and these roller coasters were amazing. Every summer I had to drive by there and my dad would say, one day we'll go. One day we'll go. Well, that's all you need to start forming false expectations. And this summer as we were passing Magic Mountain, he, he said, we're going to go this year. Okay, he actually said we might go this year. But I heard... We're going this year. And I waited and I waited. And, and Monday we didn't go. And Tuesday we didn't go. Wednesday, you know, it's so getting near. Dad, it's, it's almost the end of the week. I think we ought to, to go. And what I didn't know what was going on was my aunt and uncle were struggling with their marriage. And things were falling apart. My parents were trying to minister to them. And that their family was in no place to be going to an amusement park. And it just wouldn't have been proper for us to go. But I didn't know that. You're so self-centered and blind to these things when you're young and when you're old, too, and everywhere in between. And uh, Friday rolled around, we packed up the car, and I had picked out, like, the outfit I wanted to wear to Magic Mountain. Yeah. And my dad's a good guy, and he's kind of a joker and a prankster, and I just figured, he, you know, at the last minute he was going to pull off the freeway. And that sign comes, Magic Mountain, next three exits, right? And what is it, like Valencia Boulevard? And then um, what's the next one? Where's the Santa Clarita folk? Magic Mountain Parkway. What's the point of no return? Yeah. I'm like, Dad, you might want to move over to the right lane. I was waiting for him to just... We had a big Chevy Impala. My sister and I put our bean bags in the back. It was, it was before seatbelt laws. So we sat in these big bean bags. Dad, pull over. And he said, son, I told you we're not going. And I threw a fit. Embarrassed to say. An ugly fit. I called my dad a liar. You broke your promise. I may have even said I hate you. I remember finally my mom said, that's enough. That's enough. Really ugly. So that's who we are. 
Nobody said we were going. I, I decided. Those were my expectations. Jesus, not once, not once in any of his sermons, we have the Gospels, not once said this is the way it's going to be. In fact, right before this episode, he told them, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. They're going to spit on me, curse me, crucify me, and I will rise three days later. And yet they were so blind because of their wants and needs and desires and their false expectations, they couldn't hear him, could not hear it. It's wonderful how by the leading of the Holy Spirit, Mark puts those stories back to back. Here's what I'm going to go do, the very next story. Hey, can we sit on your left and your right? Were you not listening to the plan? Were you not listening? I am not going to conquer Rome and set up an earthly kingdom. Not at this time. In Mark 1.15, we read, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This was Jesus' message again and again and again. The kingdom of God, not the kingdom, not the Davidic dynasty. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It wasn't quit your job and get ready to reign with me. In John chapter 3, we see this scene where Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, teacher of Israel, comes to Jesus at night in his heart wanting to know who this man is and if he's from God, then he would know how to get into heaven. Jesus knew this was on his his heart. And he tells him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Of God, this is where we get the term born again Christian. Jesus said, You must be born again. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus understood a parable. This is how Jews taught. Here's a literal, physical, earthly truth to help you understand a spiritual truth. Okay. How are people born? Did you born yourself? No, it just, just happened. In fact, you don't even remember it. Sometimes we tell our birth story to our kids, and every once in a while, one of them, because we told them the story, think they remember being there. Oh, I remember. No, you remember us telling the story. You weren't there. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose to be born. You didn't choose your gender. You didn't choose your personality and your character traits. You didn't choose your height, your weight, your skin tone. You're pretty much kind of a bystander in the whole process. And that is the way Jesus is describing salvation. Because the prevailing view was, I earned my way into heaven through good works and keeping the law. Jesus could not have explained it to the most, any more uh, extreme opposite. No, it's not a view at all. It's all God's grace. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going, and so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Most commentators agree that when Jesus said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he was referring to a passage in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. If you have a study Bible and there's like reference notes in, in the margin, probably you'll see Ezekiel 36 there. So let's look at that passage. I have a slide and the font so small (laughs) that you probably won't be able to read it. 
Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is God talking to the prophet Ezekiel, prophesy this to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. How many times has he said, you've profaned my name? See, I'm not going to do this for you because of your good works. I'm going to do this in spite of your idolatry. You know my heart and you love me the same. You are amazing God. He says, Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. There's the water reference. And you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, your stubbornness, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Okay. Different flesh than the flesh that is our remaining sin nature. This flesh is a soft, malleable, teachable, humble, I'm ready to listen, God. I will put my, my own spirit within you and get this, cause you to walk in my statutes. We need God to intervene and cause us to want to obey. It's not in our natural nature to want to obey. So in other words, God is saying, before I set up this earthly kingdom, I need to prepare the hearts of my people so they'll want to be ruled by me. Again, who would want to rule over a rebellious people? And so in Mark 4.11, Jesus says, He was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. What is this mystery? A mystery in the Bible is something that has been kept hidden from past generations. And now God is finally revealing to these apostles what has been hidden. And here's what has been hidden. The law is only a tutor. It cannot save you. It's to point you to God, point you to His mercy. Messiah will not come at His first coming to set up the kingdom of Israel on earth. His first coming was to set up His kingdom in our heart. To us, this is a glorious message. We love this message. It was not well received in His day. These are people who didn't think they needed this. We're, we're Israel. We're the chosen ones. We're clean. They're dirty. We're righteous. They're defiled. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. We're just waiting for Messiah to come and do what we can't do for ourselves, which is set up our kingdom. And Messiah did come and do for them that which they could not do for themselves. But it was to save them and change their hearts. So, you know the mystery. You and I live on this side of the cross. We understand, and yet we still have false expectations. Beloved, get this. This is in a small font up there, but it's maybe the most important line in the whole sermon. Freedom from outside oppression is ultimately pointless until you are free from inside oppression. You got that? Freedom from your enemies is pointless until you're free from the power of your own sins. Because if God gave you freedom from your oppressors, we would just squander it. We would not give them the glory for it. And eventually we would bite and devour one another. In the history of mankind, any time 
a nation enjoys great affluence and peace, what happens? Why doesn't it last? Something's wrong. And so the cycle of human history has been one of exasperation and frustration leading us to cry out to God, save us. To draw an illustration that the, the, the young people will enjoy, it's like in The Incredibles when he says, can't the world just stay saved for a while? God bails us out and we get ourselves in another mess. Israel was filled with false expectations. We've been reading about them all through Mark. False expectations of the Sabbath. Well, if this is a holy man of God, why is he healing people on the Sabbath? That makes no sense. Why is he working on the Sabbath? These false expectations. Nobody in Israel stopped and said, wait, time out. We're worshiping a God who doesn't want to help people on the Sabbath? That doesn't sound right. What kind of God wouldn't be exuberant over somebody getting healed on the Sabbath and is now giving glory to his name for his healing? Where did these leaders get off track? Where do we get off track like this? We do, though. False expectation about God's view of tax collectors, sinners, and Gentiles. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus teaches the prodigal son. I didn't, I didn't come for the 99 righteous for the lost. False expectations about God's preference for the rich. They thought in their culture, if you were rich, God was blessing you for your obedience and your righteousness. If you were poor, God was punishing you for your disobedience and your unrighteousness. Talk about adding insult to injury. Not only are you poor, but now you've been condemned by society. You, you deserve what you got. And then Jesus says, what to the rich young ruler? It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Again, a, a hyperbole, an exaggeration, an impossibility. A camel's never going to go through eye of the needle. I remember reading a commentary that said there's a gate in Israel called the Camel's Gate, and it's like a shape like a eye of a needle. And no. The whole point was it's impossible to buy your way into heaven. If you change the illustration to make it somewhat possible, then you're saying that, well, if you have enough money, maybe Bill Gates and Warren Buffett can get in with their money, but the rest of us, we don't have enough. No, Jesus was saying it's impossible to get into heaven by your money, and those who trust in their money are going to have a hard time trusting in the Lord. The more money you have, the more you're going to trust in your wealth. False expectations from the 5,000 that he fed. The next day they wanted to be fed again and again and again because Moses fed our forefathers in the desert for 40 years. So Messiah should be able to at least do that. And Jesus said, you know what? I will feed you forever. You're just going to have to eat my flesh. Talk about crushing people's expectations. That's just gross. Tempted to go political here. Don't do it. Don't do it. I don't know. I read a report of governors saying we should now be giving dinner to our, our students at school. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And that's a Republican governor, so don't put your faith in political parties. So people are still want to be fed. People still want to be fed. His own disciples had false expectations. We see James and John now. It almost looks legitimate, almost reasonable that they would ask to sit on his left. And his, well, somebody has to sit there. We're in the inner circle. There's two of us. There's Peter. Why not us? In fact, his mom, their mom got involved. We read in one of the other gospel accounts. Mom, mom got involved. I wonder if it was like mom getting involved like Jacob's mom got involved. You know, hey, let's put fake fur on your arm and trick your dad into getting the birthright. Thanks, Mom. 
<laughs> Mom had some false expectations too. You know, all the disciples would soon respond sinfully when their unmet expectations happened. As soon as Jesus was arrested, well, even before he was arrested, I agree with, with commentators that Judas figured out first what Jesus really came to do and didn't like it, didn't want any part of it, was angry at the bait and switch. I gave up whatever I gave up to follow you, and now it turns out you're going to die on a cross for people's sins? I don't think so. I came to rule and reign and be powerful and important. Thirty pieces of silver, which was hardly anything, was at least I'll get something out of this, so it's not a total loss. Peter would deny Jesus three times, and the rest would abandon Jesus in his greatest hour of greatest need. So let's get personal then and find out where do these expectations originate? I'm using material from a course called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. We're studying it in the Young Married Bible Study. It's the follow-up study to how people change. Some of you are taking that Sunday night. Great study. It equips the laity to use the gospel of Christ and biblical wisdom to help one another change. And like my professor said, 90% of the things we struggle with, unmet expectations. So where do these expectations come from? Everything starts in the heart with what we desire. The heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. You can't do Christianity if you're not willing to go to the heart level. That's where Jesus went. It's a place we don't often like to go, though. It's scary in there. And so we play games as Christians and say, I won't go there if you don't go there. But we've got to go there, people. This is where freedom is. This is where honoring God has to start. So desires aren't necessarily bad. We have good desires. We have bad desires. We have good desires that turn into bad desires. Going to Magic Mountain was, was, a, was a good desire. Demanding that I go to Magic Mountain, now it's a sinful desire. And so desires turn into demands, or I deserve, entitlement. When does it happen? It happens subtly. We don't even realize it's happening. We usually see the fruit that it has happened later. Of, oh, no. I turned a desire into an idol. When the demand turns into a need, or I've got to have this or else I can't be happy, that's when you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Paul Tripp, the co-author of Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, says, the word need is the most abused word in the English language. We really only have a handful of actual needs. You know, oxygen, water, <laughs> food, love. God, thank you. Well, he supplies all those things. <laughs> Reminds me of a comedy bit from Brian Regan, Lost His Luggage. The airline lost his luggage, sent him to a counter for a little bag of necessities. You would think a toothbrush and some other things are in there. And he's like, oh, what's in this bag? Shelter, clothing, and love. <laughs> he's like, all I got was a toothbrush and toothpaste and a phone card. <laughs> so you could keep calling the airport and check. Did you find my bag? Did you find my bag? Once we turn things that are wants into needs then we're not going to let go of them, right? I have to have this. And you have to give it to me. I have to have this and you have to give it to me. I have to go to Magic Mountain, Dad, and you have to give it to me. Because you promised. No, he didn't. Everything God has promised us, he's delivered. 
Anytime we feel God has not delivered what He's promised, we need to check His promises again. Because God is faithful and good all the time. Once we have unmet expectations, then we get disappointed. And then we respond by punishing those we feel are responsible for our unmet expectations or manipulate them into giving us what we want. Look at some of the behaviors, unbiblical responses to unmet expectations. Anger, self-pity, depression, victim mentality, entitlement mentality, fear and anxiety and manipulation. I think I've experienced all those in one day before. How about you? And when we see that coming out of us, Jesus says you'll know a tree by its fruit. You see this fruit, you've got to go to the root. There's no use in telling people just stop being angry. Just stop being anxious. You've got to give them more than that. God doesn't want us to just clean the outside of the cup. He expects us to ask Him to clean the inside of the cup first. Then we can change our behavior. Have you ever been just stuck in this kind of self-pity or bitterness? That you didn't get something that you thought you should get and you just can't let go of it. You need help. You need help. You need to go to the Lord, ask for help, go to your brothers and sisters in Christ and ask them to help. But when you ask for help, Be willing to go to the heart level and see where things went wrong. What am I demanding that is not my right to demand? It's okay to say I'm having a hard time coping with this, but that's different than getting angry at God. I didn't sign up for this. I understand life is hard and there's persecutions and there's suffering and there's illness and disease and people let us down and we let other people down. But we can't allow it to tempt us to respond in in ways that are really just a tantrum. We're supposed to grow out of those. So let me give you Quickly, three, three keys to just responding biblically to your unmet expectations. I don't think this is anything you haven't heard before, but we need to hear it again. So, first, repent. Repent. At three points, and I'll begin with R because my wife insisted I preach a three-point alliterated sermon today, and I love her. so babe here's your three point alliterated sermon but you're going to have to do this when you get home (laughs) so repent turn from your unbiblical responses and reconsider your expectations and motives do I have any false expectations do I have any unreasonable expectations do I have to go to Magic Mountain no I don't have to go to Magic Mountain you know, the funny thing is, now that I've been, it's not really that great. I can't believe I threw a tantrum over it. Back then was before they sunk all that money into renovating the park. I mean, the place was a dump. The rides are rickety. You feel like it's going to fall apart any, any second. And then you have to climb that hill up to the Ninja. You know what I'm talking about? It's like 108 degrees and you're climbing this hill and you're like, how much did we pay to, to do this? They should be paying me to go here. I miss Disneyland. (laughs) If I go on those rides now, I have the worst headache the rest of the day from the head rattling. But I go for my kids because we love them. (laughs) Unrealistic expectations. Are my expectations consistent with God's Word? Did He really promise this? He promised that if you follow Him, you'll have to die to yourself daily, pick up your cross, and expect persecutions. The Bible says, do not be surprised when various troubles come upon you. Just expect them. We're supposed to expect life will be hard. I don't want to expect life to be hard, but 
You can't expect other people in your life to not sin. You're a sinner too. You can't expect other people in your life to be like you. The goal is to be like Jesus, not like me. But we have these preferences and then we insist that other people ought to prefer what we prefer because after all, our preferences are good and reasonable and right. And then we get mad at those who don't share in our preferences. Unmet expectations. Have you ever been in one of those situations with your spouse where you're like, can you just tell me what the expectation is? No, you should know. If you loved me, you would just know. <laughs> I do that to her. She does that to me. And then the expecta- expectation changes often anyways. It's a moving target. And we get disappointed with one another. And angry and self-pity and manipulation. And I'll show them. I won't talk to them for a week. Well, that'll help. Once you've repented, confessed your sins to God, First John 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to cleanse us of all our sins. Forgive us of all unrighteousness. Praise God we can go to Him and, and say, God, you know my heart. I've sinned here. I, want, I wanted my way again and threw a tantrum. I can't believe it. I'm still throwing tantrums at age 42. Can anyone older out there tell me they stop eventually? No. <laughs> Do they decrease in frequency? No. <laughs> well, then I'll just live in denial. Tantrum? What tantrum? I don't throw tantrums. Okay. Second key, renew your mind. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've got to meditate on God's Word. You've got to think through like we're doing right now. What is the reasonable expectation? What is God? What has He commanded me to do? Even if it's a good expectation, you're not getting it, that doesn't mean you stop doing what God's commanded you to do that day. Wait patiently on the Lord. Maybe it's coming just in His timing. But get about the business of doing the things He's called you and created you to do instead of sitting around and weeping and moaning and gnashing your teeth waiting for your reasonable expectation to be met. Sometimes if we just do the right thing, the person we're not getting that expectation from will be moved to do the right thing by our example. You've got to realign your will with God's will Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, I have this expectation. Could you take this cup from me? But not my will be done. Your will be done. I have a desire, but I'm going to hang on to it loosely. Trust in God's plan and His timing. And then finally, replace the ungodly behavior with righteous behavior. A behavior that's now consistent with your new outlook on your expectations or your needs, your demands and desires. But remember the chart I just showed you. You've got to like backtrack. Okay, here's the false expectation. What comes before that? Well, I, I have a need. Maybe it's a legitimate need. But even legitimate needs, you can't demand them. Maybe it's an illegitimate need. It's just a desire. It's just something that's not going to happen. Often we'll see uh, young people in the, in, in the church. They hit about 1920, and they I have this expectation. I'm going to meet Mr. Wright or, or, or Mrs. Wright. We're going to get married, and we're going to live happily ever after. And God, I've kept myself pure, so where's, where's the husband? <laughs> yeah, he's playing video games, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I don't get audience participation first service. I, I, I love this. Yeah. Who, who promised that? Who promised the, the husband or the wife? You know. I eat healthy. I work out. I expect good health then. No guarantee. It's wise to eat well and exercise, but no promises. No promises. So, repent, renew your mind, 
and replace the behavior. Notice, you confess your sin and then change your heart before you change your behavior. Change the heart before the behavior. Change the heart before the behavior. Stop the behavior. Stop the behavior. Stop being angry. Stop with the self-pity. Stop with the blame shifting. Then go to God, ask Him to change your heart. And it's not like a trite, okay, God, you'll have to change my heart if I'm going to act righteously here. Go ahead. That's not how the heart changes. Change the heart, then change the behavior. As you get better and better, this becomes natural, and you find yourself evaluating your decisions, your thoughts, your words, your interactions with people. And that's what God wants from us. To look at our lives through the lens of Scripture all day long, not just Sunday morning during the sermon. These are the spiritually mature around us. They just do this and don't even realize they're doing it anymore. They're their own counselor because they have the Holy Spirit, the counselor. They're in prayer constantly with God, asking Him, what's your plans today, God? What's your agenda? What are we doing? Where are we going? Who would you like me to talk to? Who do you want me to minister to? How can I be a blessing to others? How can I serve today? But if you're going to wake up and start with, how will I have my needs met today? You're in for disappointment. Easy for me to say, hard to do, I realize, but God is more powerful than our sin nature. Praise God. And very patient with us. I, I had some examples here that you could probably relate to. I have an expectation that my children obey me when I give them a command. It's a good desire. Ephesians 6.1, children obey the Lord, right? I mean, children obey your parents and the Lord. He wants us to teach our children to obey us because if you don't learn to obey your children, if your children don't learn to obey you, how was that for a Freudian slip? <laughs> if you don't learn to obey your children. <laughs> oh, goodness. The child-centered home. <laughs> My three-year-old's wearing the pants. <laughs> if we don't teach our children to obey us, they'll have trouble obeying the Lord later and obeying authority and obeying their pastors and obeying the Word of God. So we're diligent to teach them to obey. But those parents who have this unrealistic expectation that they will obey right away in a cheerful way, as we like to say here at Heritage Oak School. It's the standard, but the expectation is they're not going to meet the standard right away. They're sinners. They're new at this. That's what Doug Cowan used to say to me. I loved it. He'd say, do you obey right away every day in a cheerful way? No. Then why are you getting so upset with your children if they can't do it? Be disappointed, but tell them, I'm disappointed in my own behavior at times. Here's what Daddy does. I go to the Lord and confess my sins. And He forgives me and He helps me to, to do better next time. That's what our children need to hear. But if you have this unrealistic expectation that they're going to obey right away, all the time, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and anger. You need to check the desires of your heart. Do you want your children to obey because it's honoring to the Lord? Or do you want your children to obey because it will make you look good in front of other people? Do you want your children to obey because it'll be a quieter home so you can do what you want to do in the evening? You've got to check the desires of your heart. Is it really a need that your, your, your children are quiet all the time? Really? Like you can't live if they're not quiet all the time? I've convinced myself that it, that is a need. <laughs> but that's unrealistic. They're kids. They want to talk. They want to talk to you. They want to have a relationship with you. They want to ask questions. They want to have fun. They want to giggle. Sometimes you've got to help them tone it down a little. But what about your, your spouse? Do you expect that your wife to respect you all the time? And ladies, do you expect your husband to love you at all times? There's a great book on this called Love and Respect. The Young Married Group did this study a while back. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives... Love your husbands, or respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives, your wife. 
<laughs> Grammar slip. But how should she respect me and how should he love me and what expectations do I have and is it fair to punish my spouse in my mind and in my heart when they don't live up to my... That's a recipe for a failed marriage right there. So give each other grace and mercy. We're all trying to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Amen? Amen. So how did it turn out for James and John? you know the, the end of the story? Did they repent? Did they renew their minds? Did they get to sit on the right and the left? Let's uh, sneak to the back of the end of the story. Do you like to do that when you're reading a book? I don't, but I'm going to do it anyways. Mark 15, 24 to 27. I believe John did stay around for the crucifixion because Jesus looked down to him and said to John, Behold, this is your mother. Please take care of Mary after I'm gone. So John was there. And John got to witness who got to sit on Jesus' right and left in his glory. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him and the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. There's your king, James and John. There's your king on his throne. His glorious throne, the cross. The glorious cross. There's your king. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. Do you want to sit with Jesus on his left and right? I don't know. It means dying on a cross. Not literally for us, but spiritually. He said, if you want to follow me, you must pick up your cross die daily. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you'll have to be the least. You must be servant of all. You've got to live your life in such a way that you're thinking every morning, whom can I serve, Lord? Whom can I serve? How can I serve you, Lord? James and John did repent. It's a a happy ending. They die a martyr's death. They got to die like their Savior. And they're with Him in glory. James was martyred first of the apostles. Stephen was the first Christian martyr, but James was the first apostle martyred. John was the last of the twelve martyred. He died a long, slow death in exile on the Isle of Patmos in the salt mines as a slave and prisoner there. So they got it. They realigned their wills to God's will. They realized what they were signing up for, for apostleship. And we're thankful that they did. They give us an example. All the times you and I have failed, God gives us another chance to repent, renew our mind, and replace that behavior. I want to close with with this. Speaking of being servant of all, and if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you need to be the least. We lost just that kind of servant this week in our church. His name's Mike Golexon. And um, he and his wife would serve in the two-year-old nursery with the least of these. I didn't know he was such an important man out at Edwards because he never walked around this church like he was some important man. He served the least of these and did it with joy and little kids would be climbing all over him in there and and he loved it. I have to twist arms to get people to serve in the two-year-old room. It's hard in there. They're all sick and snot's coming down and they're crying and... Throwing tantrums. And Mike served in there with with great joy. He served our country. I believe he was a Marine. Continued to serve our nation at at Edwards. Served our church. Served his family. If you can come tomorrow at 10 a.m. for his memorial service, I'll see you there. We'll honor his life together. And by honoring him, we'll be honoring our Lord. Let's pray for the family. Heavenly Father... Our hearts are heavy to see such a good man 
go so soon. He was a good example for us. He carried many burdens. And he doesn't have to carry those anymore, Lord. Lord, I pray for the men of this church, anyone feeling their burdens too heavy, that they would ask for help. Not what men do, but you said we need a helper, and you gave us the Holy Spirit. So we ask you console the Golixson family, Nicole, and Brad, and Aaron, and all the extended family, Lord. Give them the peace that only you can give them. Thank you that they know you through Christ Jesus our Lord. Walk with us this week, Lord. Help us to realign our expectations so they're consistent with your will and your reality. Forgive us when we respond unbiblically, when we don't get our expectations met, Lord. Forgive us. Pick us up in love, dust us off, and send us back into this world as your hands and feet. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.